Hello, we're glad you could join us for this very special interview edition of the Extant Podcast, in which we'll be debriefing season two with our esteemed guests tonight. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave. Our guests tonight are the brains behind Extant. One brought this thematically brilliant tale to life in the first place, and the others elevated the story to a whole new level in season two. We're pleased to welcome Mickey Fisher, whose pilot script came to CBS by way of a screenwriting contest, and married team Craig Shapiro and Liz Kruger, who came to Extant by way of executive producing hit cable shows like Necessary Roughness and Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. Welcome, you guys, to the Extant podcast. Thanks for having us. Hello, hello. And we're so happy that you were able to join us on our (laughs) humble little podcast with some very devoted listeners that are super fans of the show. In fact, I was mentioning before we started recording here that your show has really been one of the most discussable series we've ever covered. So were you even aware that TV show podcasts were out there as a way for you to connect to your fans? Because let me tell you what, we've been connecting to fans that we didn't even know were out there, really. Well, we stumbled upon this on the Twitter feed, and we were already about five episodes in. And uh, I said, what is this podcast? Is this something that CBS puts out? (laughs) I started listening to it, and I said, Craig, you should come listen to this. This is fascinating. (laughs) And so that was the first that I realized, I mean, I know there are podcasts for shows out there, especially in the sci-fi world, but I'd never really listened to one. And and we just weren't aware that there was one that was so thoughtful and so in-depth and was so much fun to listen to. So we got hooked and we started listening every week. Immediately after, we were jonesing for it, like, when's it going to be up? When's it going to be up? (laughs) And that's when we started watching Extant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I was one of those fans of Lost who tuned in to their podcast, you know, the ones that the, that the showrunners did. So I kind of, that was sort of my first introduction to, Oh, that was ours too. <laughs> you guys too. And it was the one that Carlton and Damon did. Is that yeah, the one? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Same here. So, so that for me was like the first sort of experience in it. Cause that was one of those shows where, and I'm like this with a lot of movies too, any extended universe stuff that I can get, I, you know, I, I wanted to dig into and voraciously. And so, so that was that was the first one I really listened to, and then I, I remember seeing you guys like even before the show started. You after the the promos and stuff, you know, a month or so in advance. I remember seeing the post by you guys that you were that this was a show that you were looking forward to, and uh, and I remember also t- seeing you know the title of the show and messaging you and telling you that was the original title of my pilot script as well. Oh, we had to change it from Dark Matter because then Dark they had Matter the show came out sci fi. <laughs> Yeah, so now it's just the extant. Podcast. I changed mine too because I knew that there was there were a few things in the pipeline that had that same title, and it just forced me to kind of you know dig back in and, and find something different. and And I heard the word extant on a lecture by Rod Serling, and I remember I thought it's a great word, and uh, it stuck. Wow. <laughs> that was when Mickey was in college. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rod Serling was his professor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, listen. You know, speaking about watching extant, I mean, obviously, the burning question is. Is there a timetable for CBS to make a decision as to the show's fate? And what can you share with us about that? Well, I'm told that a decision is around the corner. I just don't know how far the corner is away from where we are now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know if it's down the block or if it's a couple of miles away. But no, I mean, in reality, they do have to make a decision um, in the next few weeks because, uh, you know, we have some production realities. So I suspect by October 1st or around there, we'll probably hear something. Right. Certainly within the next few weeks after that, because we'll need time to gear up and get prepared. We didn't have a lot of that for season two. So the sooner they do make a decision, the better for all of us. And I'm hoping it's in the next month or so. That's good to hear. 
Well, Mike and I are used to uh, that with a show we also podcast about called Continuum, which took forever for the decision to get made. Well, and that's what happens with 13 episode seasons. There's so much time in between that it can be uh, a little bit grueling for the fans. And I'm sure for the uh, <laughs> crew as well. Well, especially yeah. if you do that thing like, uh, you know, Mad Men, where they split that season then into two. Oh, uh, you know, Breaking Bad did the same, where there'll be like six episodes and then seven or something like that. It makes it even worse. That's right. In fact, we have a lot of things that we were wondering behind the scenes how they happened. But one of the big things that I was wondering when we first heard that Craig and Liz were going to become showrunners, you know, sci-fi fans are very different from other television fandoms. So how has the transition been from being showrunners on shows like Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce to then steering a sci-fi ship like Extant, you know, especially with venues like Comic-Con and things like that, where the geek fandom is a bit rabid. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting because fans of any show are rabid. You know, the real fans, like Unnecessary Roughness, back in the old days where people just checked their Facebook page. I mean, the fans used to write lengthy, several paragraph opinions of the show. And, you know, they would write us notes and you'd read all the reviews and stuff. So all that stuff is the same. The fans are out there and they're contacting you and they're telling you how they feel. The difference here is the scope. I mean, like you said, Comic-Con, you know, Craig had his first visit to Comic-Con. And Craig is a, I mean, he can tell you himself, but he's a diehard sci-fi fan from the first day I met him, he was talking about Harlan Ellison and, you know, watch, he's watching. <laughs> right, that wasn't the first day we yeah, met. It was the second. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he's read all the, the sci-fi greats and what, he's a huge sci-fi, um, I don't want to use the word geek. Yeah, that's, fan. We can use the word fan. That's right. But so this was the, the opportunity he had been waiting for. I dragged him through the mud with all my, like, you know, girly <laughs> sort of shows. And, you know, we did a football show together. So that obviously was more interesting to him. But this was the opportunity he's been waiting for. But, you know, he can speak to um, but you know, I, I his think, experience at Comic-Con. But, well, in Comic-Con was a ball. Mickey and I were there. We had a, a great time. But uh, I'll just say that. Generally, I love the world of genre. It's a lot of fun. But in the end, writing is writing. You know, it's character and research and trying to find connections between the characters in your stories and building a world around them. And it just happens to be 30 years in the future. So I, I, we never found the sci-fi aspect of it daunting per se because any world that you step into, part of the fun of it is learning about it and researching it and and building out that world that you're making so anyway i I can only say that it was a a lot a lot of fun stepping into this world that mickey had created Uh, i'll say another thing though about as craig was saying about writing it's that great characters are why people tune in and you know one of our touchstones is battlestar galactica which you know was a show that we both love and the thing that made that show so successful ultimately are the relationships you wanted to know was Starbuck going to be with Lee or, you know, all of these things, <laughs> they boil down on some level to romantic connections. I mean, all of people, all of humanity, it, it boils down to, you know, who do you love and how do you love? That really is what it means to be human on some level. And so I think the best shows and the greatest shows and even Spielberg, I mean, a lot of his stuff thematically goes to those very issues. Well, one of the questions I have regards the 
double episodes. So, for instance, uh, the season two finale was the fourth time that double episodes of Extant aired, uh, 107, 108, 109, 110, 206, 207, then this year's finale. Now, do you guys know ahead of time that that's what the network has planned, or do you find out relatively at the last minute? Yes and no. Um, I know Mickey, first season, they told you ahead of time about 107 and 108, right? Yeah, I think that 107 and 108 we knew about, but then 109 and 110 had kind of shifted a little later. You know, like that was one that, that kind of came later in the game after we'd already written and maybe maybe shot it as well because, they, you know, they started pushing things back to make room to premiere new stuff in the fall and, and things like that. So the, so the schedule kind of shifted a little bit, and that was one where we didn't have the opportunity to um, to really plan it out as a true – two-parter you know that would kind of seamlessly go one to the other there but um what's interesting for us i think is in that in 206 and 207 this season that wasn't initially where we thought the the two-parter would be right we thought it was going to be 207 and 208 right and and we had really like plotted them out that way as like like you know they go sort of seamlessly one into the other but um but, but then at the end when we were watching, I thought it actually worked really well uh yeah it did like you say you know, it was there was a fairly seamless transition from one to the other and one of the um, important parts of writing television is act breaks, you know, and, and spending the time when you're in the writer's room, breaking the stories, and then when you're writing scripts to figure out, okay, what are our act breaks? How do we launch off uh, at the end of an act into a commercial? And one of the challenges of putting these episodes together is that they change the act breaks on you. <laughs> oh, God. They, they tell you at the last minute, oh, by the way, you have to take out two act breaks. Right. Or you have to move an act break later. So. These things are fascinating problems that are when you're at home, you're you're not watching at home, you're not aware of it. But some some fast tamp dance dancing has to go on to try to find our big punchy act outs. Well, two twelve and two thirteen though were different entirely because we had shifted time slots um, after the first few episodes. They moved us into the nine o'clock slot, and um, I guess by doing so, that would have conflicted with our finale. Um, I, th- I guess there was some... Uh, oh, they had something else booked in, like a, a football yeah, preseason so show. they didn't want to bump our finale and have like a space or, or bump it you know, to the 10 o'clock slot in the last week. So they said, well, we'll just out- air them together. We'll do a two-hour finale. But what that did was, you know, the, as you guys know, the end of 212, JD gets shot. And we were hoping to have a week where people <laughs> were, were thinking, oh, my God, what happened? And instead, <laughs> it's like we had you a get commercial. shot and you come back from commercial <laughs> and right. with his daughter. And you're like, huh? So that was the only, I think, real bump for us in the 212-213, you know, putting those two together. But otherwise, I thought actually that they worked together nicely. Yeah. All right. Well, one of the things that changed pretty drastically between season one and season two, and Mickey, I'll ask you to field this one initially is the jettisoning of the immortality storyline, which seems to have worked out for the best. But I noticed that you kept the visions of dead loved ones occasionally perpetrated by the spores and the hybrids. Was there a specific reason why dead people were part of the visions? Or was that another idea that's kind of being phased out as part of the series reinvention? Well, you you think the dead people, the visions, it was always a way for the alien entity to, you know, from the very beginning, from the first moment we see it happen with Molly, on the seraphim was that these things can access the deepest part of you. You know, it can access 
your deepest pain or your greatest hopes, your your worst fears. And you know, because if it's a control mechanism, it has to be able to do it in an instant. And so, you know, those typically seem to be the things that are buried the deepest and and sort of most accessible. And so that was always the concept behind those was that it would go to something that would just like knock you on your ass instantly, you know? And then we, and so we've still used that a little bit too, like this season with, you know, JD, or part of it, like as it grew and got stronger, it became, you know, about creating these things too. And, you know, with, uh, you know, with Sparks and his daughter. And then we see in season two, like with JD and his flashback to second Kuwait, things like, you know, it takes you back to that moment so that it can, you know, immobilize you and, and, and make you do what you want it to do. And, and so as far as the immortality storyline goes, you know, that was kind of one of those ones that there was this thing I wrote in the pilot and it was uh, you know, the Yasumoto's introduction where he was in this like in this goo. And it was I, every single meeting that I went to, it was one of the things that people brought up and, and they're like, ah, oh, what is the deal with this goo? You know, and, and I had all these ideas for it. And, and but it turned out to be really problematic in telling the story. It was just one more big element. You know, it was like a story with AI and first contact with these aliens and, and there are all these different kind of rules that you have to set up with the aliens and how they work. And and so the goo was just one more thing and we struggled with it all season long, you know, to the, I think that half the writers were just like, were ready to strangle me because I was like, no, we can make it work. We can make it work. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, ultimately like, yeah, it, it ultimately ended up just like being too much. It's sort of like having to deal with that just made things it kind of collapse under the weight of it. So, yeah, I thought getting rid of that and, and also like it, it really played itself out in the sense that it was really just a catalyst in the sense that it was the thing that drove Yasumoto to put the Seraphim in orbit in the first place to, you know, seeking it out and, and started the chain reaction of all these things in the aftermath. And then once he died, there wasn't really like a reason to carry it forward into season two. Okay. Now, you know, you mentioned JD and, and regarding the addition of Jeffrey Dean Morgan to the cast, did, did you guys have an idea of where you wanted that story arc to go and then look for an actor to fit that profile? Or did you just say, we want Jeffrey Dean and then we'll go from there? And and then should we get a season three? Will his addition as a series regular on The Good Wife impact his availability, if that's something you can even speak to? Well, it's interesting because we knew that John was not going to make it past the first episode and we knew that we wanted to bring in a dynamic love interest for Molly. And so we were talking about who is the sort of opposite, who is her opposite in the universe and what could they learn from each other. And so we had always talked about wanting to bring in sort of a dissolute detective of the future. Um, we, we had played around with backgrounds and, you know, what kind of person he was, but always sort of from a very different world than Molly. And one of the first days we talked about the character, we said, well, you know, it'd be great if he was like a Jeffrey Dean Morgan type. So we kept calling him JDM. And then we said, well, why don't we go after Jeffrey Dean Morgan? I mean, maybe he's available. And we were treating him like... But the great thing is, like, immediately the writer's assistant put up on the screen pictures of him from uh, Watchmen. And we were like, what? That's it. That's it. That's the guy. (laughs) You know, and we have no idea at this point, is he available? Does he want to do it? Does he... You know, we just had no idea, but he just felt right for the part. So then when we... um, had the opportunity, you know, to, to make him an offer, and everyone was very excited, including Hallie. He took a, quite a bit of time to think about this. He gets a lot of offers. He's a real catch in the TV world. And so weeks went by, and we had a couple of great conversations with him. And then we kept saying, you got to come do this. You got to come do this. And, you know, we tried to make it as enticing as we could. And um, I think he had a fantastic time. He and Hallie really had great chemistry. And, um, 
um, as far as the, the good wife goes, in some ways it really is great that it's a CBS show because, you know, when CBS first told us they were going to make him an offer, they said, well, the good news is, you know, he's still on our network and, you know, if he wants to do it and he's available, we can make this all work. So there's definitely, um, if there's interest in, on his part. And there's stuff, way, ways yeah. to pull it off, yeah. but it's, it's, it's just too early to know. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to share one question that came to us on our Facebook page uh, from one of our listeners named Alan Thomas. He says, uh, one of the greatest aspects of the show is the way that it drops future technologies and societal changes into the background very subtly, such as the 3D printed fast food or the second Kuwait war, or even um, JD's occupation as a cop for hire. So who generates those ideas and, and what other small changes might viewers have missed that you could sort of point out to us and, and give us an aha moment? A lot of it starts in the writer's room. One of my favorite things of the whole season was just that idea of the cops for hire. And that came up within the first two weeks of the writer's room with you know, with all of us together and, and talking about that character and, and just asking the question, like, what does police work look like 30 years from now? And then we came up with, you know, once you start talking about it, you go, oh, well, yeah, well, maybe it is privatized so that they can save money and and – not have to pay cops health insurance and you know, things like that. And, <laughs> and then how does that work? Well, it would probably work like off of an app, like an Uber. So they're kind of Uber cops. And, and you get this message and it says this crime has taken place. You have so many seconds to confirm whether you want it or not. And it pays this much. And, and, and things like that to me are so interesting because it becomes like it's less about a gadget than, and more about how the world operates in the future. And, and, uh, and so I love those things, but I love the gadgets too. And I think that it's a real collaboration, right? Uh, Liz and Craig, I think it's like, you know, we kind of kick these things around the writer's room and then we hand it over to, to, um, you know, Scott McGinnis, who's, who's the props designer and, uh, or the production designers and they come back and they just evolve in really cool ways. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever sort of seen how the, a writer's room works. You probably have seen it in some form. But, you know, we basically sit around a table staring at each other for hours, you know, <laughs> sitting in a room. Uh, so you better like these people. But you, you sit around and it's a lot of like, wouldn't it be cool if it was this? Or wouldn't it be cool if it was that? Or what about this? And so where people will bring in articles and say, I just, you know, so it's very think tanky at, at the beginning of the season. Because once production starts, it gets insane, you know. But when it's just you, all of us sitting there breaking story the first couple of weeks, it's the most, in some ways, my favorite time because it's very imaginative and there's not all the pressures of editing and post-production and, uh, you and know, production. shooting and prepping and all that stuff. And you really, um, the most creative stuff comes out. And I will say that the most interesting thing was we had mapped out our entire season by week two. It was amazing how it, it just flowed. The only thing that, that didn't stick was the third act, which is probably episode 11, 12, and 13. We had a wormhole in there that I won't go into. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, the Amblin guys uh, you know, who produced the show were like, hmm. We don't think. We don't don't, think don't so. know about a wormhole. Yeah. Right. So, so. It seemed like another sci-fi concept on top of all yeah. our sci-fi concepts. So every couple of episodes in the room, we'd be like, ah, if only we had the wormhole. <laughs> yeah, we'd solve so much. But so, uh, so but I'll I'll add to that that it's so interesting how many different directions the ideas come from involved that involve the future, because yes, we have the writers' room and we have this amazing prop master who designs all these things. But on top of that, we have the graphics team that make all the screens. And these are the same guys who did like Iron Man and they do giant features 
and their work is is phenomenal. And a lot of times we'll I'll say to them, you know, hey, we need something a little like this, and they'll just they'll come back with a screen that feels appropriately futuristic without being some crazy sci-fi thing. It just feels very organic to the world of 30 years from now. And then the same thing with our the visual effects team, which is was done through uh, Encore here, where you know we don't have a massive Game of Thrones or Black Sails kind of visual effects budget. Those guys are spending millions and millions of dollars on visual effects. We have to target everything we want to do. And so a lot of times I'll go to them. Uh, Stefan Fleet is the visual effects uh, supervisor, and he'll say to me. Well, listen, we can't do what's in the script because that is like, that, that's like a feature thing. You know, we can't do that. It's a full 3D something. But here's what we could do. And so he would come back to us with ideas for ways that what we wanted story-wise could be accomplished at a much more reasonable price. And that kind of collaboration between us, props, visual effects, and the, the graphics guys, it was kind of cool to see how each got handed off. Each person figured out if they were best suited for the job. And out of that came the look of the show. Very cool. All right. Now, uh, you know, getting back to the characters, which, you know, you guys uh, alluded to earlier, is the core of any good show. Uh, you know, we hear about the show's Bible and, and certainly characters and their backstories and, and how far back you go. But, yeah, I mean, certainly uh, I'm curious how far back you go for some of the major characters. But did anybody's role become more prominent than you initially anticipated? The one that always comes back to me is is from Lost with Ben Linus, where the original plan was to have him for three or four episodes, and then he became a major character. Right, right. Well, I'll tell you what's interesting. I mean, I think two characters whose chemistry was undeniable this season uh, were, were Lucy and Charlie. And we had planned to, I think we were going to kill Charlie in episode eight. He was going to take a bullet. Um, Mickey, does that sound right? Was, was that, I know Lucy or, or Charlie, one of them was yeah, supposed was to Lucy die. Guy. I think well, actually, was... no, here's what it was. Charlie was supposed to die. <laughs> and we started to love Charlie so much. We, we said, we can't kill Charlie. We can't kill him. All right, we'll kill Lucy. And then as we started to get closer to killing Lucy, we said, oh, we can't kill Lucy. <laughs> uh, we love them. So, so we found a way to keep Charlie, kill Lucy, but bring her back. And we kept her out for an episode. But it is surprising sometimes when, you, you know, Charlie became the conscience in some way of the whole piece. Like, you know, he was struggling with all the moral questions right in front of us, you know, and he was uttering the things that we were all thinking and um, and watching him play against Lucy and Julie, we thought really was very sparkly in the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I guess I loved about that storyline is that that I always felt like Charlie was thrown into a role for which he was not prepared at all. Totally. Right. And of course, the same thing with Julie. I mean, she from where she went last season to where she found herself this year in charge of this huge operation and caught up in this government conspiracy, really, that she was out of her control. I th what I found so interesting about her and Shepard was, you know, here's two people that you could easily paint as the bad guys of the season. You know, I mean, when you read the Twitter feed, people really, really get upset at the stuff that Julie did and what Shepard did. And, but, but I view it as, you know, the show doesn't really have bad guys in that way, that these are people caught up in extremely difficult circumstances and difficult times and that there is no clear-cut right answer. You know, if I was the head of a government organization trying to save the human race, 
from extinction, I, you know, I would go to some extreme measures to do it. So I understand Shepard's problem and Julie, the same thing. I mean, this is her life's work and they're threatening to take it away and shut it down. And I understand their dilemmas. And you know, one of the things you guys did so well in the podcast is you plugged into that frame of mind that we had, which was that you're watching people being compromised and compromising themselves and you're struggling because on the one hand you understand why they're doing it and that was something that we really wanted to um, highlight which is in extreme times how will you behave it's like you know people always say well what would you have done in Nazi Germany like if they were coming to kill you would you have protected people what would you have done it's like until you're in a situation you can't know how you will behave and what you will do and sometimes the difference between right and wrong is very difficult to see um, in the moment all right, well, here's where I start to fish for what kinds of things like that are going to be carried forward into season three, should there be <laughs> one. Uh, specifically, you know, I'm wondering, with the alien invasion story centered around the survival of the offspring and the Sean Glass sports from season one, that carried over from season one to season two. And which storylines do you think will be carried forward into a new season, given that season one and season two appear to be fairly complete packages? And the only loose ends I can really see is, are Taylor and perhaps the way that society will react to the hybrids. Well, I think, yeah, I think those are the exact two things that are the sort of big possibilities for it. Because you know, we know that Taylor is is out there, and this sort of you know, all powerful supercomputer is now in a body in a three dimensional world. And and what might he do there? Uh, I think is a great question. But uh, but to me, it's like the the second part of it is the really interesting part too, which is we ended the season with the news breaking to to the public at large that, that there is life out there and now it's here. I'm, I really love that because you know, in the first season it was very contained. There were only a few people who knew about this and it was a very you know secretive conspiracy. And, and then in season two, we see how the government would react to that. And so, you know, hopefully in a, you know, if we got a season three, we would be able to explore what does that do to society at large and how, to, and how do people react? That's interesting to me. What about, what about for you guys? Who, us? Mickey, I totally disagree with everything you said. <laughs> no, uh, I no, think that's exactly I, right. Of course. I mean, these are the two great uh, elements that have been set up to pull forward into the third season. And what happens around that? Who is there? You know, it's, it's just too early to tell. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it's a little bit like I don't like to think too far into it until I know the show is definitely coming back. And the reason why is there's a lot of excitement when you sit down in the room that first week and you all start sort of generating ideas. It's a little like a honeymoon period, and I, I don't like to think about it or talk about it too much because I feel like um, it may ruin some of the spontaneity if you come in with a, a very clear idea that first day. Mm. Okay. All right, now this one's for Mickey, uh, you know, because I know until I really started paying attention to television and the story behind the story, so to speak, you know, I know for when I started looking at shows like Lost and and J.J. Abrams and went back and realized that he created Alias. And and you you have this idea that they really have a a lot of impact on the show on a day-to-day basis, which really isn't true. You know, it's almost as if once the pilot airs, they're moving on to other projects. So, so Mickey, how difficult was it turning over your, your creation to a writing team? Although, I guess, as it turns out, you're part of that writing team. 
Yeah, you know, I'm in a little different situation than uh, those guys, and I, I don't have a Mission Impossible to go make. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so, or, yeah, or a little movie called Star Wars. Uh, so hey, I, your limo is waiting for you outside. <laughs> right, exactly. That's what I do. I drop in for about five minutes. I go. Eh, I'm not really crazy about any of this, and then I just get back in the limo and go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm 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 really in the trench with you know I'm in the trenches with those guys. Every, you know, in the writers' room every day. The only time I'm gone is like every other writer, which is was when you're producing your episode, you disappear for a couple of weeks. Um, because you're on set, but you know, I was, you know, Liz and Craig and I, like when they came on board, we, we kind of went into the bunker. We had to come up with a lot of stuff really quickly and kind of mind meld early on. And, and then we brought the others, other writers on. And during those early couple of weeks, there were a lot of times where Liz and Craig, they say, you know what, let's just the three of us, let's just close the door for a little bit and let's nail down the stuff that we all really like. And so it became a very close collaboration and, and it was like that through the very end. And I'm, you know, I'm in a pretty lucky position because, you know, the other thing that happens, the non JJ thing sometimes too, is that you're a writer and you get kind of, you're, you may create the thing, but you get squeezed out, you know, and I, and I've been really lucky over two seasons to have people who made me partners in the process. And, and, and I had a voice and was able to, to say, this doesn't feel right to me. And this, you know, or here, I'd like to go this way. And, and we all work together to do that. And, and so, so yeah, so it's less, it's less like turning it over and seeing what happens. But to the second part of it, there are things that are, because it becomes a, a collaboration and because you bring in different voices, it develops in surprising ways. And there are things that are far better because my experience, my viewpoint, my abilities are, are limited to myself. And when you add some really smart, fun, creative people like Liz and Craig, the show is going to grow and change in a way that you could not have foreseen, but ultimately are really proud of and happy with. All right, cool. Well, our, our next question comes from a listener as well, Barb Rankin. She says, it was interesting to watch the hybrids and Molly change in different ways as the alien DNA infused their bodies, not to mention JD's reaction to Molly's transfusion. Would this be something that you would explore in season three, especially how humans might want to stay a distinct species and not accept an alien upgrade, so to speak. I like the use of alien upgrade. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's a really just a funny. Yeah, like a trademark term. Humans yeah. 2.0. Right. Yeah. It's like you can go in. To... Yeah, it's like a Jiffy Lube kind of thing. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, I think, of course, we'd explore it. I think it's 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 a big part of the show. I think that was the subtext, and then became the text of the show, which is: is this evolution or is this extinction? You know. And I think that's a big, that was a big theme that was sort of driving season two. And I think in three, it would certainly be Mm -hmm. very much in the forefront. Yeah. And there's something that is like, you know, people are fearful of that, of that change. We had a lot of those debates early on because we were like, if that upgrade means that you're no longer human, even if it's better, even if it means you could, you know, live longer, you heal yourself, all these things, would you want it? And could the audience root for that? (laughs) Or should we ask them to? You know, like there was a lot of really interesting debates early on, even ourselves, because it's a really interesting, complex theme, I think. Yeah. I agree, because in the show, we're not turning into like oogly monsters out of Starship Troopers or something. You know, we're turning into humans that are slightly upgraded. And so I think it's an interesting question about whether that is a positive thing, a negative thing, or or in the end, kind of neutral. It just, just is. And I, the powers that people got were really terrific and not you couldn't fly you know you that it didn't change the entire nature of the way humans interact it just subtle small changes that i think the word better could be applied 
Well, I think the mind control thing or the mind reading thing is what makes it a little bit problematic, that would make which could be scary, fun. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the real issue becomes, well, if some of the people have these powers and some don't, I mean, in my mind, it's a little bit like guns in the wrong hands. You know, it's like these powers are not inherently good or evil. It's when you put them in the right or the wrong hands, you know, that's when it becomes uh, problematic. And so you can't control who's good and who's not. Yellow eyes don't kill people. People. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, and, not, not this season. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, the other element of subtext that always appealed to me was that question, uh, what does it mean to be human, that kind of now has transcended what does it mean to be sentient and obviously embodied a lot in Ethan in season one and season two. Yeah, I think that big, you know, Mickey, I feel like you guys really explored sort of the question of what does it mean to be human in, in season one as well. And I think we talked a lot with Mickey about it. It's like, how could we take the next step? And I think it was really about what does it mean to have humanity? Yeah. You know, yeah. like that's not just something that's specific to um, humans in the show, you know, that AIs have humanity in the show and the hybrids have humanity. So we're trying to look at that, you know, what does that look like? Right, and I, I think it does, it is something that's going to be explored heavily in the near future as ethicists have to deal with this stuff, you know, like like Blade Runner, like like that show Humans, you know, when when these machines appear basically in every way to be indistinguishable from humans, do we have the right to just flip them on and off? Do we have the right to wipe their memories and stick something else in there? You know, it's, these are not easy questions and we're definitely going to have to deal with them in the near future as we did on the show this season. I can't wait to see if that's how it ends up because of course we're definitely looking forward to hearing news very soon about whether or not there's going to be a season three. I have one list, one I'm going to drop in here. You can answer yes, no, or maybe. Is Frankie, st <laughs> is Frankie still alive? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, Frankie. Yeah, Frankie seemed pretty resourceful. Yes. Yeah. Frankie was Mickey's creation. Uh, Mickey, um, you know, just to go back, though, to something you, you guys asked earlier about where do the ideas come from, you know, like the sort of futuristic stuff. Mickey is so facile with a lot of these details. He writes, when you read some of his writing, it's like it's, like it's true. Like this actually exists. <laughs> he writes with such conviction and he has, his brain works in fantastic ways. So we could never kill Frankie because that was Mickey's creation. Well, that's, yeah. I'm just planting that seed in case she's it gonna makes sense. She's going to have a spinoff, I, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Frankie, exclamation point. It's a musical. It's a musical. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Uh, we had a, a great time and also got a lot more scoops than I anticipated. So I'm glad we were able to get some information out of you. Oh, <laughs> no. Did we say too much? Did no. I th oh, it's juicy, <laughs> juicy, juicy details. <laughs> but we hope everyone enjoyed this season of Extant, both uh, on television and with the podcast. But we will be back, hopefully, for season three to discuss more. And we're so happy that we got this chance to talk to you guys. Well, thank you guys for being so diligent with your analysis. And thank you to all the fans, Barb and Leo, shouting out to you guys. <laughs> I listen to you guys, so um, I, I appreciate uh, all the feedback. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, talk to you later, guys. All right, Dave. Well, that was really a wonderful interview. And I don't know why I always sound so surprised at that, but that was really a joy. Yeah, and, and you know, it's funny because you never know 
how talkative somebody's going to be <laughs> yeah. you know, because obviously they are ultra creative on the written page and, and producing it. But you know, we've been so fortunate with the interviews we've done that made our job easy. We just ask the question and sit back and, and listen to some fascinating stuff. That's right. And I'm always worried I'm going to overstep my bounds asking for a spoiler. Right. But apparently that wasn't a problem. So <laughs> that was great. So I hope this isn't the last Extant podcast, everybody. Uh, but if it is, just like the finale for season two, I would feel fulfilled having that as our last foray, that interview. But thanks a lot. And hopefully news in October, as the showrunners told us. See you guys. See you guys.